Hello, and welcome to another episode of Imagine That, a podcast for astrology and archetypes. Welcome to the second episode of Imagine That, a podcast for astrology and archetypes. I'm your host, Sean Nygaard, and you can find me on the web at imagineastrology.com. This is an exciting episode. On Tuesday, March 7th, 2023, at 7.34 a.m. Central Time, the planet Saturn moves into the sign of Pisces. So this is the Saturn in Pisces episode, which I'm calling Feeling Good Feelings, Old Feelings, Poetry and Music Feelings. So to get us off on the right foot, or maybe the left foot, after all, Pisces rules the feet, I've got something that Carl Jung says in the Red Book. He says, the knowledge of the heart is in no book and is not to be found in the mouth of any teacher, but grows out of you like the green seed from the dark earth. Scholarliness belongs to the spirit of this time, but this spirit in no way grasps the dream, since the soul is everywhere that scholarly knowledge is not. But how can I attain the knowledge of the heart? You can attain this knowledge only by living your life to the full. So on that note, what are you doing to celebrate this important shift in the sky? I, for one, this week am going to see Tina, the Tina Turner musical, and I can't wait. So what's in store for this episode? We're going to start with a short section called the technical stuff, kind of like a fact sheet of the things you need to know about Saturn moving into Pisces. And then we're going to pick up from a previous episode and go into a couple of things in more detail. Then we'll look at Saturn in Aquarius moving into the sign of Pisces. That will be followed by a folktale and then an extended section on movies and archetypes. Last, but certainly not least, we're going to take a look at Venus's exaltation in the sign of Pisces and the important role that that plays over the next two to three years. So here comes the technical stuff. Over the last few years, Saturn has moved through the sign of Capricorn and the sign of Aquarius before now moving into the sign of Pisces. And we know that Capricorn and Aquarius are both Saturn-ruled signs. This means that Saturn can feel very strong and confident in the signs of Capricorn and Aquarius. Saturn might feel in control, 
But Saturn is in for quite a change when moving into the sign of Pisces. It can be like walking along the dock for five years before stepping off into the water. Saturn gets his sea legs. Here are the dates. Like I said, Saturn moves into Pisces on Tuesday, March 7th, 2023, and doesn't shift into the sign of Aries until May 24th, 2025. Shortly after that, Saturn will turn retrograde and move back into the sign of Pisces on September 1st, 2025, before stopping, stationing direct, and then moving forward into the sign of Aries for the long haul on February 13th, 2026. Now, Saturn moves in 29 and a half year cycles. You can look back 29 years ago and see what was going on in your life. You may find echoes of that period starting to percolate now. And if 29 years ago you were being born, that's not unimportant. So Saturn last entered Pisces on May 20th, 1993, and then retrograded back into Aquarius on June 30th, 1993, before turning direct and moving into Pisces on January 28th, 1994, until it moved into Aries on April 7th, 1996. 29 years before that time, Saturn moved into Pisces on March 23rd, 1964, backed into Aquarius on September 16th, 1964, and then moved into Pisces again on December 15th, 1964, where it stayed before moving into Aries on March 3rd, 1967. And if you've been with us for a while, perhaps you were born when Saturn was in Pisces beginning on February 14th, 1935. At that time, Saturn stayed in Pisces until April 25th, 1937, when it moved into Aries, before retrograding back into Pisces on October 17th, 1937, and then on January 14th, 1938, Saturn entered Aries for the long haul. So here we are in 2023, looking back at the mid-90s, the mid-60s, and the mid-30s. Now you may have Saturn in Pisces in your birth chart, you may have a bunch of planets in Pisces, or you may have no planets in Pisces. However, Pisces will show up in your chart somewhere. If you use whole sign houses, you will find Pisces on the cusp of one of those houses, and it will take up the entirety of that house. If you use a quadrant system like Placidus, you will likely see Pisces show up on the cusp of one house at one degree or another, or you might see Pisces on the cusp of two houses. Or you may look around your chart in a quadrant system and not see Pisces on the cusp of any house, in which case the sign is intercepted within one of those houses. For example, you may see Aquarius on the cusp of one house, followed by Aries on the cusp of the next house. 
And that just means that Pisces is a little deeper in your chart, kind of in a room within a room of the house. Now, the sign Pisces is a mutable sign as opposed to fixed or cardinal. Mutable signs usher in the change of seasons. Gemini ushering change from spring into summer. Virgo bringing along the change from summer into autumn. Sagittarius carrying autumn into winter. And Pisces helping us transition from winter into spring. Mutable signs, in a sense, can be either fixed or cardinal because they're flexible. They're adaptable. I think of Taylor Swift singing in her song, Dear Reader, bend when you can, snap when you have to. Now, in traditional astrology, Pisces is ruled by benefic planets. Jupiter, the greater benefic, is the ruler of Pisces, and Venus is exalted in the sign. Now, importantly, Pisces is a water sign. It deals in the realm of emotions. It deals in the realm of feelings. Hence the title of this episode, Feeling Good Feelings, Old Feelings, Poetry and Music Feelings. And on a symbolic level, the water of Pisces is the water of life. For this is potentially a time of renewal. See, Pisces is one of the signs in the watery part of the sky. I talked about this in the previous episode. But we have Capricorn, the sea goat, followed by Aquarius, the water carrier, and then Pisces, the two fish. This is the time when life in the form of light emerges from the depths, slowly but surely, making its way up in the sky, up through the signs from Capricorn into Aquarius into Pisces, brought in by the water of life to be born in the springtime when the sun moves into Aries. In Capricorn, the Murgoat has begun shaping the structures and the architecture of the world, starts to move above ground in the sign of Aquarius to breathe fresh air, fresh thoughts, inventiveness, innovation, looking at things from many different perspectives. And in Pisces, we get dream time. Now, typically, Pisces is talked about as the last sign of the zodiac. It's a time of things ending, a time of things dissolving. It's perceived as last when we begin with Aries in the spring. Aries as the first sign. But life has begun long before it emerges in Aries. And if we begin at the winter solstice, in that deepest, darkest part of the year, when the sun is at its lowest, and begin moving up from there, Pisces becomes the third sign of the zodiac. And it makes this part of the sky, Capricorn, Aquarius, and Pisces, a rather confusing transition time overall because things are coming to an end. At the same time, 
that things are beginning, things are starting, beginning to make their move towards spring. It's why this time can feel exhausting. Things have reached their ending point. Life is running out. At the same time that the water of life rushes in and the imagination opens up to all kinds of possibilities. There are no guarantees, but today we're going to talk about how we might approach Saturn's time in Pisces to make the most of it, to use it as a time for renewal, a time for dreaming, for some downtime, for longing, and even for escaping which we'll definitely be talking about. To put this in context, I think of something Toni Morrison said. And Toni Morrison was born with planets in Capricorn, with the sun in Aquarius, and with the moon in Pisces. So this was all familiar terrain to her. And I feel like what she says here combines the qualities of Capricorn, Aquarius, and Pisces all together. She says, imagine... Envision what it would be like to know that your comfort, your fun, your safety are not based on the deprivation of another. It's possible, but not if we are committed to outmoded paradigms, to moribund thinking that has not been preceded or dappled by dreaming. It's like the last stop before emergence in spring, is to take the time to dream. So you may remember from the previous episode that I talked about the distinction that Carl Jung makes in the Red Book between the spirit of the times and the spirit of the depths. I want to revisit that, but in the context of the symbol for Pisces, which is the two fish, they're usually depicted as fish swimming in opposite directions, tied together by a cord. So you never get one without the other, but they seem to be at cross purposes. Now let's take one of those fish and call it the spirit of the times. Take the other fish and call it the spirit of the depths. And let's frame them in the context of the Wizard of Oz. So imagine for a moment that you're Dorothy at the beginning of the movie, living in Kansas. It's a black and white world. It's the Great Depression. It's the Dust Bowl. Nobody's paying attention to you except for Mrs. Gulch, who is after your little dog, Toto. Life is enough to make you sing a song called Somewhere Over the Rainbow, to long to be somewhere else. We're going to call this black and white, Dust Bowl, depressed world the spirit of the times. Now, don't take that literally, even though it can be literal. We're talking metaphor here. We're going to let the weather change. And a cyclone is going to start sweeping in from the distance. 
swirling all the dust and the dirt everywhere as it approaches. And whether it's a window frame or a door that swings open or blows off its hinges, Dorothy is knocked unconscious, pulled into the cyclone and transported to the world of Oz, where, of course, she wakes up to life in full technicolor. Gone is the boring blandness of Kansas, and ahead of her, nothing is familiar. There's good witches in big poofy dresses who arrive by bubble. There's all these munchkins who are surprisingly good at spontaneously choreographed musical numbers. There's the Wicked Witch and her smoke and her broom. And of course, there's the Yellow Brick Road. Now to back up for a second, they say that the soul moves in circles. And in this context, note that the Yellow Brick Road is a circular road, moving in circles, encountering mystery every step of the way. As Dorothy meets her friends and they march toward the Emerald City, they have no idea what they're going to encounter along the way. It's a mystery. Meanwhile, back in Kansas, the roads are dirt, and Dorothy pretty much knows where each road leads. Now to stretch this out a little more and go back to the two fish, it's like one of the fish represents time and the other fish opens up to eternity. The world of imagination, the realm of the soul. Now, you don't get one of the fish without the other. So you never really get the spirit of the times without the spirit of the depths. But we can, for all intents and purposes, confine ourselves unwittingly to the spirit of the times. It can feel like the right thing to do, because the depths can be too much, it can be too overwhelming, and there's nothing wrong with walking a familiar road. But I look at it this way. When confined to the spirit of the times, astrology becomes like a box that you need to fit your life into. You're an Aries, and that means this and this and this. You're a Cancer, which means that, and so on and so forth. But when you open up to the spirit of the depths, astrology and your birth chart become the building blocks of a life. You're able to build your life and imagine your life and create your life instead of trying to fit it into a box. It makes me think of Aeneas Mitchell. She's a songwriter known for writing the musical Town. It's a musical she spent 10 years working on before it ended up on Broadway, winning the Tony Award for the Best Musical of 2019. It's a musical that combines the mythology of Hades and Persephone with the story of Orpheus and Eurydice. Why do I mention this? Well, it's fascinating to me that Aeneas Mitchell was born with the Aries-Libra axis as very prominent in her birth chart. And she happens to have written a musical about the goddess Persephone, who enters the underworld at the vernal equinox, 
When the sun moves into Libra every year, at least in the Northern Hemisphere, Persephone begins her descent down into the underworld, and she begins her ascent to emerge back into the world in the spring, on the spring equinox, when the sun is in Aries. Now, did she ponder her chart and come up with this? Who knows? Probably not. But it's when we trust our imagination and go with our imaginations. Things really align with the soul, the soul that is represented in the birth chart. So rather than just being an Aries, which Aeneas Mitchell very much is, there's this piece of her soul that is Persephone emerging every year in the spring after spending a great deal of time in the underworld. It's a fascinating musical to listen to and learn and think about, especially in the context for the Pluto in Libra generation. Hades and Persephone have fallen out of love with each other, and it's the story of Orpheus and Eurydice, especially through the music of Orpheus, that the world is brought back into tune. That's what I'm talking about in distinguishing the spirit of the times and the spirit of the depths. And if we go back to the two fish, it's the way these two fish work with each other, always in accord with each other, often at cross purposes, which you'll see more as we move along here. But with the spirit of the depths and a little imagination, anything becomes possible. So let's look a little more at this move from Saturn in Aquarius for the last three years or so, moving into the sign of Pisces. And I want to start with a treadmill story. So I found myself on the treadmill, as I do, watching all of the seemingly random numbers on the dashboard changing, some moving up, some moving down, some staying constant. And I was listening to a song by the Pet Shop Boys on repeat. And it's called Dreaming of the Queen. Why was I listening to this song? Who knows? It was the mood I was in. It just captured my attention and kept me moving. And Neil Tennant of the Pet Shop Boys sings, Dreaming of the queen, visiting for tea. You and her and I and Lady Di. The queen said, I'm aghast. Love never seems to last however hard you try. And Di replied that there are no more lovers left alive. No one has survived. So there are no more lovers left alive. And that's why love has died. Yes, it's true. Look, it's happened to me and you. So why was I listening to this song? on the treadmill when my mind begins to wander and wonder, especially after watching the news, it didn't seem utterly ridiculous. The dream described in the song, a world where there were no more lovers left alive. And I thought, you know, it's not that unusual that if we exaggerate the spirit of the times when Saturn has been in signs of its own rulership for five years and more, for Saturn, love is not the top priority. And as Saturn was moving through the later degrees of Aquarius, and I remember seeing the comedian Emo Phillips 
post on Twitter. He retweeted an article about a mini heart that was grown in a lab that could pump all on its own. And Emo Phillips asked, but can it love? There's a certain resonance of this with the sign of Aquarius. And it's not that Aquarius people don't have hearts. Often they have huge hearts. You know, Saturn has a certain agenda. And then, of course, I remember that I was listening to this album by the Pet Shop Boys, which came out about 29 years ago when Saturn was in the late degrees of Aquarius. So it got me to thinking of how important the shift from the air of Aquarius into the water of Pisces is, and how different they can be if we contrast them and pull them apart. Air is very different from water. Fixed signs are very different than mutable signs. And how to embrace Pisces in all of its radical difference from Aquarius. And that's a rhetorical question, but at the same time, a number of weeks ago, I started watching the show Mad Men again. Hadn't seen it for years, but I started at the beginning and have been making my way through it. And, you know, I just go through this. I watch things. I listen to things. I read things. And as I was watching Mad Men, I began to wonder again. And so, of course, I realized that the creator of Mad Men, Matthew Weiner, was born with Saturn at 17 degrees of Pisces. He was born in 1965. So not only is Don Draper a character very representative of Saturn in Pisces, the entire show comes from the imagination of someone born with Saturn in Pisces. The arc of the series moves through the 60s. And if you watch the ending of season three, you get a taste of Saturn in Aquarius. And as you move through season four, it shows the potential renewal available when Saturn moves through Pisces. Season four of Mad Men is the season set in 1965. And perhaps my favorite line in the whole series is when Don Draper heads out to California to visit Anna Draper, perhaps the only person in the world, the only woman who really knows who he is. She's the one, in fact, who speaks to him of the soul of the world. She knows him on a soul level. And she says, I always felt that we met so that both of our lives could be better. And I thought, I want to head into Saturn and Pisces with that in mind. And of course, I think of Jim Henson again, who I mentioned in the previous episode. Jim Henson was born with Saturn at 18 degrees Pisces in 1936. Jim Henson, the creator of the Muppets, he said, watch out for each other, love everyone, and forgive everyone, including yourself. Forgive your anger, forgive your guilt, your shame, your sadness. Embrace and open up your love, your joy, your truth, and most especially, your heart. I love that. Watch out for each other. You know, Saturn and Capricorn and an Aquarius seems to have, you know, been part of this culture that's like, watch out for each other. 
But Jim Henson, in the spirit of Saturn and Pisces, is watch out for each other. And if I'm gathering the evidence of Saturn and Pisces and putting it up on my wall, these are what go up on my wall, these kinds of things. So to summarize, Saturn moves into Pisces on March 7th, looks back to the mid-90s, the mid-60s, the mid-30s. Pisces is a mutable, adaptable sign. It's ruled by benefics. And it's a water sign, deals with feelings, emotion, and brings with it the water of life, the mythic water of life. Now, some of you may know that I taught a webinar on Saturn in Pisces called Dreamtime. I taught it for my friend Adam Ellenboss's Nightlight Astrology Speaker Series. And as part of that class, I read a folk tale as told by John Moriarty. It's the story of the seal woman. And I want to revisit that telling right now. Now, there's a lot I could say about John Moriarty, the extraordinary Irish storyteller, shaman, mystic, artist, perhaps one of the most unique thinkers I've ever encountered. And in his book, Nostos, an autobiography, he tells the story of the seal woman. And it goes like this. So John Moriarty is out walking along the coasts of Ireland. And he says, north of me, on a shore I couldn't see, a herd of seals were wailing. So vast and long drawn out were some whales. They ran all along under the sky, seeming to want to go all around the world. I thought of a story known in one or another version of itself on all North Atlantic sea coasts. So for me, this is, this is my ancestors who lived in Norway, you know, along the sea coasts. And my ancestor, who was the first to come from Norway and set foot in, in this continent in North America, was born with Saturn and Pisces. So I imagine what was the longing that called out to him? What was it? Here's the story. He was an inshore fisherman. He picked mussels and limpets from the rocks. He dug in sandbanks for razorfish and clams. And rowing himself up and down the inlets, he fished with nets for shrimp when they were in season. One year during an autumn spring tide, The wind was blowing from the land, and when it did ebb, the sea retreated farther than he had ever seen. Out picking mussels that day, he was tempted to cross a channel to the nearest of three sea stacks. Never in all his life were the pickings so rich and so easy. Yielding to greed, he stayed on and on, and so it was that when he at last decided that he had as much in his sack as he could carry, it was too late. The tide had turned, 
and flowing now in full flood, he saw that he was cut off. Having learned the hard way over the years, he knew there was nothing for it but to sit it out till the next ebb tide. Not too upset, he sat on the lee of a great ledge of rock. At the full, coming up and then rising high in the sky, the moon was so bright it was almost like day. In the small hours, he got up to work a stiffness and a perishing chill out of his muscles and bones and out of his mind as well. And it was then, although they couldn't see him, that he saw as many as 12 or maybe 15 seals coming ashore. As they did so, they dropped their seal coats on the shingle and on the rock ledges, and now they were human beings, only more beautiful than any human beings he had ever seen. He watched them till dawn, he watched them till ebb tide, and then, like he was dreaming, like he was doing it in a dream, he stole around, picked up one of the seal coats, and started for home, walking thigh deep across the channel. Since without her coat, the seal woman couldn't turn back into a seal and swim away as all the others had done, she followed him across the channel, up the shore, along the small roads, into his house. That night, while she was asleep, the man hid her seal coat in the thatch. In time, they got married. They had three children. But always, during those years, first thing in the morning and last thing at night, she would go down to the shore. And while she was there, you might as well not talk to her or call her at all, for she wouldn't hear you. One day, as she was making bread, kneading the dough, a drop of oil fell onto the table in front of her. From its smell, she knew it was seal oil. Months and months later, the same thing happened. Early next morning, while her husband and her children were still asleep, she got up out of bed and crossed the yard to an outhouse. Coming back with a ladder, she leaned it against the thatch and digging for it directly above her table, she found it. She found her seal coat, as radiant and perfect as it was the day she dropped it on the seashore. Knowing that if she went back in to see her children and her husband, she wouldn't be able to leave them. She walked down the small roads to the seashore, and there at the, at the lip of the tide, she overshadowed herself with her old seal nature, and she swam away. For she had another husband and other children in the sea, and now, whatever the loss, she must be with them. It is said that sometimes at ebb tide, she would come back to her human children and she'd lie with them. And always before she left them in the dark of the morning, she would comb their hair. That's the story. Um, and John Moriarty comments, to mediate between worlds. Note that. <laughs> Seal woman, was she destroyed? by her double allegiance, by her allegiance to her family on land and to her family in the sea? Or did she one night very consciously assume the burden of that double allegiance? Did she lie down in the difficult, fervent pain of it? And did she emerge? 
does she still come ashore at ebb tide? Standing over us while we sleep, does she comb our tangled minds? Does she comb our tangled lives? To mediate between land and sea, to mediate between what we submarinely are and what we terrestrially are, to mediate between what we etymologically are and what we civically are. Forgetfulness isn't forever. Suddenly, when we least expect it, maybe, the old yearning falls down before us onto our table, and before we know what is what, we are walking the small roads down to the shore. Which one of us doesn't have a husband and children or a wife and children in the sea? And anyway, the children we have on land, we have them also in the sea. Given what it is, and, so, and civilization, given what it is, civilization must always steal our seal coat. I love that story. It's one of the things to keep in mind when Saturn is moving through Pisces. That drop of seal oil is the kind of thing to be attentive to. It's often in fairy tales or in folk tales how one gains entrance to the other world. Not through grand dramatic gestures, but sometimes in the most gentlest of ways. And you might miss it if you're doing 50 million other things. And I use that story of the seal woman to talk about Saturn as the mediator. You know, Saturn is exalted in the sign of Libra. And Libra is often the mediator. But when I say mediator and Saturn is moving through Pisces, Saturn is what mediates between the two fish. Saturn is what mediates between time and eternity. Saturn can stress the importance of time when it's necessary. But one of the greatest opportunities of Saturn moving through Pisces is this opportunity to access the other world. And in this sense, Saturn is also a gateway. Saturn is that planet in the solar system that acts as a gateway between the seven traditional planets of the ancient world and entrance into the modern world through Uranus, Neptune, and Pluto. So Saturn as mediator is also Saturn as like a doorway between the world of time and the world of eternity, between the spirit of the times and the spirit of the depths, a mediator between Kansas and Oz. One of the things to keep in mind, though, is that Saturn as a doorway is often what I think of as a, a doorway of difficulty. It's just how Saturn works. It's just how the world works. It's not the only way that Saturn works. But here's what I mean. In the mid-90s, there was an album by the Smashing Pumpkins called Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness. The title 
and the album cover are iconic for Saturn and Pisces. There's a big fat book you can order. It's a beautiful book called Saturn and Melancholy, very separate from the music of the the mid-1990s. It's a book that explores Saturn through myth and culture and astrology and temperament. It's a, it's a rich exploration of Saturn and the connection Saturn has with melancholy. Saturn is the planet most connected to the melancholic temperament. And so one of the ways that Saturn can be a doorway of difficulty when moving through Pisces, on the one hand, is that nobody really wants to sit around and feel melancholic. Who wants to embrace Saturn that much? And on the other hand, it's the great artists, it's the great creators of culture who do. And the spirit of melancholy very much goes against the spirit of the times. In a manic culture with a $15 billion antidepressant industry, Saturn's move through Pisces actually asks us to spend some time feeling down. And that's the doorway, that's the drop of seal oil that grants one, that can, that can, there are no guarantees, but it can grant one access to that other world. Now it's time to talk about Saturn in Pisces through movies and archetypes. Pisces is well suited for this kind of exploration because it's really the sign most associated with movies. You know, it's the spirit of the times that gets us to the movie theater when the movie starts at 7.20. Everyone knows where to go and when to arrive. And once inside... In the dark, you get transported to wherever that movie is going to take you, the world that that movie creates, especially if it's a good one. I want to explore some movies for Saturn in Pisces themes, but first I'm going to step away from that, but not too far away at all, because I want to talk about romanticism. It's an important part of the sign of Pisces. And quite frankly, it's not very well understood in Western culture. It's actually discouraged. But to talk about it, I want to go to an article that I wrote that you can find on my website or in the Mountain Astrologer. It was published in the Mountain Astrologer. And I wrote about the Saturn-Neptune cycle. You know, there's a reason that modern astrology gives rulership of Pisces to the planet Neptune instead of the planet Jupiter. Both Neptune and Pisces have oceanic resonances. In many ways, they speak the same language, which is the language of images, the language of imagination. And what's fascinating about this move of Saturn through the sign of Pisces is that when it ends and Saturn moves into Aries, Saturn will be conjunct the planet Neptune in the sign of Aries, at zero degrees. 
but it means it's the end of the current Saturn-Neptune cycle and the start of a new Saturn-Neptune cycle. So I've explored Saturn-Neptune through the lens of movies in this article in The Mountain Astrologer called Life to Live and Dreams to Dream. And here's the section of the article where I talk about the beginning of the current Saturn-Neptune cycle. It began in 1989. And so you can keep in mind while Saturn is moving through Pisces that what I'm talking about here is how the cycle began. So this section is called the Saturn-Neptune Conjunction of 1989, What We Stay Alive For. Our current Saturn-Neptune cycle began in March 1989 with the two planets conjunct at 12 degrees Capricorn. On June 2nd, 1989, the movie Dead Poets Society was released, a movie that captures the essence of the Saturn-Neptune conjunction with poetic precision. Dead Poet Society is set in the fictitious Welton Academy, a conservative and formal private school for boys, the best in the United States. The school's motto, extolling tradition, honor, discipline, excellence, reveals the terrain of Saturn. Now just note that, Saturn. John Keating, a controversial new English teacher played by Robin Williams, passionately tells his students, medicine, law, business, engineering, these are noble pursuits and necessary to sustain life. Again, these are Saturn's terrain. But poetry, beauty, romance, love, these are what we stay alive for. And these are the terrain of Neptune. As a teacher, John Keating is not only introducing his students to the class syllabus, he's also evoking the entire period of Western history known as the Romantic Era, which spans from roughly the late 18th century through a majority of the 19th century and includes Neptune's discovery in 1846. In the same way that Uranus was discovered in 1781 amidst the scientific revolution and the age of reason, and symbolically represents the qualities of revolution and a brilliant scientific mind, it was within an atmosphere infused with romanticism that the passionate heart of Neptune was discovered. What, then, is Romanticism? The Romantic era emerged in part as a reaction to the hyper-analytical and rational mind of the Age of Reason. Yet it also emerged as a natural next step. After the Industrial, French, and American revolutions rearranged the order of the external world for many, the Romantic era continued that revolution internally, focusing on the interior life of the individual. As the external governing forces fell, an internal governing force emerged, the imagination. 
Most significantly, the Romantic era gave privilege to the imagination as a faculty higher and more inclusive than reason. By making imagination a priority, the Romantics were recognizing the a priori nature of imagination, that it's there first. As Van Gogh expressed it, I dream my painting, and then I paint my dream. See, Romanticism has less to do with the kind and quality of books found in the Romance section of a modern bookstore, and everything to do with the kind of imagination Romantic poet William Blake was describing when he wrote, To see a world in a grain of sand, and a heaven in a wildflower, hold infinity in the palm of your hand, and eternity in an hour. This is the Neptunian imagination that coursed through the Romantic era. Said poet John Keats, My imagination is a monastery, and I am its monk. Keats's description of Saturn that begins his epic poem Hyperion is a far cry from the standard astrological description. Deep in the shady sadness of a veil, far sunken from the healthy breath of morn, far from the fiery noon and eve's one star, sat gray-haired Saturn, quiet as a stone, still as the silence round about his lair, forest on forest hung about his head like cloud on cloud. See, Romanticism places high value on intensity and depth of emotional feeling, on beauty, and on experiences that find their expression largely in the arts, from literature and drama to music, painting, and poetry. As a matter of fact, sales of poetry far exceeded prose during the Romantic era, and culture thrived. It can be difficult for modern society to take Romanticism seriously, as science and reason still hold the reins of the Western psyche. Western culture's fact and evidence-based ways all but warn against Romanticism. It's just not practical. Get to the point, would you? Clear the clutter. We don't know what to do with Romanticism. To enter imagination, going to the movies, for example, is considered an escape, a departure from the norm, a break from reality. For the scientific or economic mind, grand passions can be a bit much and are often dismissed as drama. Saturn talks us down from such wuthering heights. Western culture may eschew Romanticism, yet the Phantom of the Opera, set during the Romantic era in Paris, is the longest-running musical of all time, followed closely by Les Miserables, which is based on the novel by the great Romantic writer Victor Hugo. Somewhere deep inside, we seem to recognize the importance of the Romantic vision. 
Neptune is named after the Roman god of the seas, who is also the god of fresh water, horses, hurricanes, and earthquakes. As the god of the seas, Neptune's scope is vast and oceanic. As the god of horses, Neptune runs unbridled, ungoverned. As the god of earthquakes, Neptune shakes the earth. In shaking us loose from the literal world, Neptune also shakes us loose from the literalness of the world, freeing us up to imagine. William Blake noted, the world of imagination is the world of eternity. Standing on the shore of an ocean, we cannot see an end. Neptune opens us up to eternity. Neptune's dynamic range is immense and boundless, from quiet and subtle pianissimos to grand explosions of choral exuberance, from the gentle moisture of a light mist to the devastating force of a tsunami. I found a fitting description in M. L. Stedman's book, The Light Between Oceans. There are times when the ocean is not the ocean, not blue, not even water, but some violent explosion of energy and danger, ferocity on a scale only gods can summon. It hurls itself at the island, sending spray right over the top of the lighthouse, biting pieces off the cliff and the sound is a roaring of a beast whose anger knows no limits. So that's Neptune. That's not necessarily Pisces, but it's Pisces adjacent. Back in Dead Poet Society, John Keating reaches for the romantic heart of each of his students. Within Welton's walls, he appeals to their individual imaginations. Some take him up on the offer. Neil Perry is particularly inspired and moved. He auditions for and is cast as Puck in a production of A Midsummer Night's Dream. Neil is infused with life as he discovers his love for theater. And he's good at it. You have the gift. What a performance, Mr. Keating exclaims to him on opening night. However, Neil's love of theater goes against his father's wishes. In this brief dialogue, we can hear stern Saturn conjunct romantic Neptune. Mr. Perry says, We're not going to let you ruin your life. Tomorrow, I'm withdrawing you from Welton and enrolling you in Braden Military School. You're going to Harvard and you're going to be a doctor. Neil says, But that's... Ten more years. Father, that's a lifetime. Mr. Perry says, oh, stop it. Don't be so dramatic. You make it sound like a prison term. Saturn rules prisons. Of course, ten years in school sounds like a lifetime to Neil. Dreams delayed or deferred can wither away. The romantics champion spontaneity. Now note, back in the real world, so to speak, On November 9th, 1989, the Berlin Wall fell, a concrete wall designed to protect and control those within its boundaries. Yet, 
a wall that inspired countless and often imaginative attempts to escape its confines by people with dreams greater than its limits. When the wall came down, the flow of life returned to East Germany. And lastly here, Disney's immensely popular movie, The Little Mermaid, released on November 17, 1989, also captures the Saturn-Neptune conjunction by immersing us directly in the ocean, where we meet the mermaid, Ariel. Like Neil Perry, Ariel is a romantic. She dreams of life among humans. She also has a stern father, Triton, who forbids it. As long as you live under my ocean, you'll obey my rules. Contact between the human world and the mer world is strictly forbidden. I am never, never to hear of you going to the surface again. Is that clear? Well, of course Ariel goes to the surface again. We wouldn't have a movie if she didn't, at least not an interesting movie. Ariel follows her dream. In both Neil Perry and Ariel, we see Neptune's imagination coming from a place unwilling to be governed by Saturn's existing limits and rules. Dead Poet Society and The Little Mermaid present an essential Saturn-Neptune theme. Does Saturn stop Neptune's dreams as it emerges or allow it to flow? So that gives you a little taste of romanticism and archetypes in movies. So there are five movies that I want to talk about, and they all came into the world when Saturn was in Pisces. And they each say something different about Saturn and Pisces as they lay out some of the important themes. And those movies are The Shawshank Redemption, The Sound of Music, The Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, The Bridges of Madison County, and The Lion King. And one of the things that I love about astrology especially from the archetypal perspective, which is really the only perspective of astrology that I've ever known, is that when you hear these five movies and you think about these five movies, you don't necessarily think that they have a ton in common. But as we move through each one, it's kind of amazing. So I want to talk about these movies from a Saturn-Pisces perspective, and I'm not going to worry about spoilers. I'm not going to go into intense detail, but I have to talk about certain elements of the movie, even if you haven't seen it. But I encourage you, especially over the next three years, to see each of these movies. So The Shawshank Redemption came out on the 10th of September, 1994, with Saturn at 8 degrees of Pisces. And right off the bat, we know that most of the movie is set in prison. So even though Dead Poet Society and The Shawshank Redemption are very different movies with very different settings, we can see Welton Academy as a Saturnian environment, just as much as we can see the prison in Shawshank Redemption as the terrain of Saturn. And this is one of the reasons why, in the previous episode... I wanted to really draw out the Saturnian 
emphasis of our current times. Because when you really recognize that dominant Saturn, you can see how we're not unlike Welton Academy having fired the Robin Williams character. We're not unlike Shawshank in that Saturnian quality. And this movie shows us a couple of really important things. The first being that Andy Dufresne, while doing time, does not lose touch with his heart. Some of the lines from the movie are so telling of the power of Saturn's presence. They're talking about one of the prisoners who's been in Shawshank for a very long time. They say he's just institutionalized. I'm telling you, these walls are funny. First you hate them, then you get used to them. Enough time passes, you get so you depend on them. That's institutionalized. And they say prison life consists of routine and then more routine. And interestingly, they say that prison time is slow time. And that's one thing in a culture that's moving super fast. In fact, when I was listening to the news today and hearing about the airplanes almost touching each other, almost colliding, the near collisions that are happening, it's because everything's moving too fast. That's what the person being interviewed was saying, that it's all happening because things are moving too fast. There's too much pressure to keep things moving. So while prison time is slow time, Saturn time can be slow time in such a powerful way. But in the poetic language of movies, you can hear the archetypes coming out. So, of course, there's that amazing scene where Andy Dufresne locks himself in the office and broadcasts an opera aria over the loudspeaker system to the entire prison. And what happens is everybody stops and time stands still. That's a powerful theme we might keep an eye out for or an ear out for when Saturn is moving through Pisces. And while I can't do a Morgan Freeman impersonation, I love what he says in that scene. He says, I have no idea to this day what those two Italian ladies were singing about. Truth is, I don't want to know. Some things are better left unsaid. I'd like to think they were singing about something so beautiful it can't be expressed in words and makes your heart ache because of it. I tell you, those voices soared higher and farther than anybody in a gray place dares to dream. It was like some beautiful bird flapped into our drab little cage and made those walls dissolve away. And for the briefest of moments, every last man at Shawshank felt free. That's Saturn in Pisces. But then Andy Dufresne gets sentenced to solitary confinement for two weeks because of his little stunt. But when he comes back and he's talking with the guys again, they assumed two weeks in solitary confinement would be the hardest thing ever. And Andy Dufresne had a different perspective. 
He said it was the easiest thing, and it's because he stayed in touch with his heart. He remembers the music. He said there's something inside that they can't get to. It's yours. That's Saturn in Pisces. So now we move from the Shawshank Redemption to the Sound of Music. I love this movie. I love this example. What's amazing about archetypal astrology from my experience is I've seen this movie many times throughout my life, but never have I grasped it in a particular way. Never has it touched me in a particular way once I understood it through Saturn and Pisces. It started off as research. Oh, the sound of music came out when Saturn was in Pisces. And then I pull up the chart and I see that the sound of music has Mercury in Pisces, Chiron in Pisces, the sun in Pisces, Saturn in Pisces, the moon in Pisces, and Venus in Pisces. Came out on March 2nd, 1965, with Saturn at eight degrees of Pisces, the same degree as the Shawshank Redemption. So the Shawshank Redemption ends with Andy Dufresne getting free. The Sound of Music begins with Maria being free. She runs from the Abbey and she sings, of course, the famous opening song about the hills being alive with the sound of music. But importantly, she sings, I go to the hills when my heart is lonely, and I know I will hear what I've heard before. My heart will be blessed with the sound of music, and I'll sing once more. This is the kind of renewal I'm talking about when I say that Saturn in Pisces has the potential to be a time of renewal. This is the way the water of life works. And as a doorway of difficulty, as a drop of seal oil, for Maria, it's when her heart is lonely. And it seems to be lonely when she spends too much time in the Abbey, but she knows where to go. And it's one of the questions that comes up when Saturn goes through Pisces, is for you, in your life, what are the hills? Where do you go when your heart is lonely? First, is your heart lonely? Does your heart get lonely? And if so, where does it go? Where does it long to go? And even if this is the first time you've thought about that question, if this is the first time that, that inkling of that feeling of loneliness comes in, it's like when Maria says, I know I will hear what I've heard before. It's going to be familiar. It's archetypal. It's familiar to the soul. Now, if you notice the backdrop of the sound of music, at the beginning, it's like Maria is escaping from the Abbey. And a lot of times, movies begin the same way that they end, the same theme. And in The Sound of Music, it begins with this backdrop of escapism. And of course, it ends with the backdrop of escapism in a most powerful and profound and political way. But to go back into the movie, the nuns are trying to solve a problem called Maria. 
But Mother Abbess is the one who sends Maria out into the world to the house of the widowed captain to be the governess in the house where he and his seven kids live. Now, there's nothing about Saturn and Pisces that says what we're up to over the next three years is going to be easy. In fact, it can be a little intimidating. That's how Saturn works. So, of course, Maria has to kind of pump herself up and sing, I have confidence before entering the house. And when she first meets the captain, he has his whistle that he blows to have his kids all line up with perfect posture in the right order on his cue. And he lets Maria know that the first rule in this house is discipline. So again, we have a Saturnian environment, like Welton Academy, like Shawshank. Here we have the captain's house and the captain as the Saturnian figure. Now, when I say he's a Saturnian figure and discipline is his thing, it's not a criticism. There are Saturnian people in the world and we need Saturnian people in the world. Just like there are Neptunian people, and we need Neptunian people, and there are martial people. This is what the storytelling power of movies can draw out and emphasize, is that one character can represent a whole archetype. But no human being is ever just one archetype or just one planet. And we all have the same assortment of planets throughout the same options of the signs. It's just in human relationship, it's like we are constellations colliding, and it gets very complicated. And like in The Sound of Music, the captain's discipline doesn't quite gel with Maria's far more free-flowing approach. Not just to life, but to how she would interact with the children. So it's like the captain is Saturn. And Maria brings in the Piscean influence. This is what Saturn in early degrees of Pisces can be like. Saturn may be super skeptical of what the sign has to offer. But importantly, Maria doesn't entirely back down. She trusts herself and learns to trust herself. And she gains the trust of the kids. And soon enough... They're out all riding their bicycles, having a lot of fun, wearing clothes made from old drapes. And so while things are going well, it's a little too much for the captain, and he gets upset. But perhaps one of the most moving scenes in the movie is when the captain hears his own children singing to the Baroness in beautiful harmony taught to them by Maria. And in the movie, you see it on the captain's face when he hears his children singing. And it's so beautiful. And he says to Maria, you brought music back into the house. Which is to also say that she brought feeling back into the house. So we're going to move on to The Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. Speaking of music, 
Now, this movie came out on the 15th of May, 1994, with Saturn at 11 degrees of Pisces. Now, I saw this movie in the theater, and I loved it so much. I went to see it again, and then I went to see it again and again and again, and my excuse was to take every friend I had, one at a time, to go see the movie with them. That was my excuse to see it as many times as I could, and it was one of the first movies that I ever saw in double digits in the theaters. Now, it's about two drag queens and a transsexual, that was the term back then, who crossed the Australian outback in a rackety old bus they christen with the name Priscilla. And again, this is one of those movies that for as many times as I'd seen it, once I started to let the archetypal perspective seep in, because there can be like instant kinds of things when you see something instantly, but there's a way that over time, the archetypal perspective, when you stick with it, will seep in. Because ultimately, it's not an analytical approach that I take. It's an archetypal approach. It's not about analyzing things. So I will note that in 2023, The Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, would not pass everyone's cancel culture testing. There are a couple scenes that are outrageous and dated, but it's still an incredible movie that tells us a lot about Saturn and Pisces. Now, it opens up with a drag performance of I've Never Been to Me which is a great campy song. I loved it when I was watching the movie in 1994 and 1995. It was only a few years ago, really, that it it just hit me that it probably wasn't accidental that the movie starts with a song called I've Never Been to Me that could be foreshadowing something happening during the movie, which, of course, it does. But significantly, at the start of the movie, that performance is very tired. It's performed like a routine by a very tired drag queen, kind of at the end of her rope. There's not a big audience. They're not enthused to be there. She's not enthused to be performing. It's the same old, same old. This is what things can be like with Saturn in Pisces, where we think of Pisces as the last sign of the Zodiac. Things are coming to an end. And this is where fate intervenes in a slightly tragic and also very funny way, because the movie really is hilarious. Fate intervenes in a way that sets three friends on their path across the Australian outback. And of course, in the middle of the desert, the bus breaks down. What are two drag queens and a transsexual to do? And this is where I emphasize that Pisces is a mutable sign. This is where along the way, over the next three years, the bus might just break down. And of course, I'm speaking metaphorically, but it's these kinds of situations that bring out the best in the mutable signs. How to not just respond in a fixed way, Mutable signs come after fixed signs. And how to get things started again. 
because mutable signs are followed by cardinal signs. So there may be staying put that is required in kind of a holding pattern kind of way. And those might just be drop of seal oil moments. And in the adventures of Priscilla, queen of the desert, it's opportunities for these three people to get to know each other more, to stop and talk about things they never talked about before. And in one of the most powerful scenes in the movie, while they're waiting and while they're stuck, a young Aboriginal man shows up on the scene and brings them back to his tribe. And the song choices, again, are not accidental. And to see these drag queens performing I Will Survive with Indigenous people is really something. People who know a thing or two about survival. And so the destination where Priscilla is headed happens to be a town called Alice Springs. Note the water in the name. They make it to Alice Springs, where their personal relationships deepen even more. And after their performances are done, they head back to Sydney, and the movie ends the way that it began, with the same drag queen performing. But this time, it's not tired. It's full of life and full of fun and full of energy. And that is the power of the water of life. That is what Saturn in Pisces has to offer to us. And Western culture is in need of the water of life these days. So this is where we move into the bridges of Madison County. Now this is a movie that I didn't see back in the day. This one came out on the 2nd of June, 1995, with Saturn at 23 degrees of Pisces. Now, I don't know why in 1995 I wouldn't have seen a movie with Meryl Streep and Clint Eastwood. Maybe it seemed like it was too sappy or something. But I decided in the spirit of watching it from a Saturn-Neptune perspective to put it in one night a few months ago as I was preparing for the webinar that I was teaching. And I cried so hard, my eyes were crusty the next morning. I had no idea the movie was so incredible. It's got a lot of the things that I've talked about so far. And interestingly enough, it came out in 1995, but the movie is set in 1965, when Saturn was in Pisces. So it carries a particular resonance. It's like Mad Men that way, created by somebody born in 1965 and set in that time period of the 60s that includes 1965. It's like The Sound of Music, which came out in 1965 and is set in the 1930s when Saturn was in Pisces. And I didn't mention it, but Julie Andrews was born with Saturn in Pisces. So when these kinds of things join up, it truly deepens the archetypal experience. And The Bridges of Madison County is no exception. It's based on a book, and so of course I had to read the book recently. And one of the things I like in the book is that it refers to 
what transpired in Madison County, Iowa in 1965. I like that something transpired. And it begins with a housewife in Iowa, in the Midwest, USA, in a town with a lot of space between the houses. And this housewife, Francesca, sees her longtime husband and her growing kids as they head off to the Iowa State Fair. And she's left on her own for a while. And you start to understand that she's devoted the greater portion of her life to being a mother, to being a wife, to being a housewife in the Midwest. And I've got a couple of things to read from the book, but I really like what the author has to say, because this is, it's a story that was brought to him that he ended up writing about. And the movie has a relatively quiet beginning, setting the scene. And in the introduction to the book, the author, Robert James Waller, that the relationship this story is about is a relationship of great passion between the housewife Francesca Johnson in Madison County, Iowa, and Robert Kincaid, a photographer for National Geographic who comes into town one day. And he addresses, the author of the book addresses, the same kind of thing I referenced when talking about Western culture's response to romanticism, to the great passions of romanticism, to dismiss them. And he talks about how that kind of dismissal, he says, makes it difficult to enter the realm of gentleness required to understand the story of Francesca Johnson and Robert Kincaid. And I love that notion of entering through the realm of gentleness that is required. It's not unlike the drop of seal oil. It's not unlike the kind of slowing down and sensitivity that Pisces offers up through melancholy, through reflection. It's not just gentle, but it's quiet. And in some paradoxical way, it's that gentleness or that quietness that makes room for great emotion. Now, I can't say enough about Meryl Streep in this movie. Her subtlety and the way as an actress, she brings you into that realm of gentleness as her character Francesca meets Robert Kincaid and begins to open up to him. Now, the book describes her life as a routine of hammering sameness. Now, we've heard this before. This is our friend Saturn. This is life in Kansas. And while her husband and family are away, which is to say her sense of responsibility and duty are on hold, Robert Kincaid comes into town. And after a little while, they both begin to tell that something is happening. There's a connection between them. And I love this from the book. As they're beginning to spend the evening together like a date, she's upstairs getting ready. He's down in the kitchen. And this is how the scene is described. She turned first one way, then the other, looking at herself in the bureau mirror. 
That's about as good as I can do, she thought. And then, pleased, said half out loud, It's pretty good, though. Robert Kincaid was working on his second beer and repacking the cameras when she came into the kitchen. He looked up at her. Jesus, he said softly. All of the feelings, all of the searching and reflecting, a lifetime of feeling and searching and reflecting came together at that moment, and he fell in love with Francesca Johnson, farmer's wife of Madison County, Iowa, long ago from Naples. I mean, his voice was a little shaky, a little rough. If you don't mind my boldness, you look stunning. Make him run around the block howling in agony, stunning. I'm serious. You're big-time elegant, Francesca, in the purest sense of that word. His admiration was genuine. She could tell. She reveled in it, bathed in it, let it swirl over her and into the pores of her skin like soft oil from the hands of some deity somewhere who had deserted her years ago and had now returned. And in the catch of that moment, she fell in love with Robert Kincaid, photographer-writer from Bellingham, Washington, who drove an old pickup truck named Harry. And without spoiling it too much, especially the way the movie shows it, I don't know if I can come up with a clearer, more powerful example of the two Piscean fish tied together, swimming in opposite directions. That is the relationship between Francesca and Robert. This is how the book puts it, because the the symbol for Pisces can be understood as paradox. It represents a paradox. And in the book, this is what Francesca says. The paradox is this. If it hadn't been for Robert Kincaid, I'm not sure I could have stayed on the farm all these years. In four days, he gave me a lifetime, a universe, and made the separate parts of me into a whole. I've never stopped thinking of him, not for a moment. Even when he was not in my conscious mind, I could feel him somewhere. Always he was there. Though we never spoke again to one another, we remained bound together as tightly as it's possible for two people to be bound. I cannot find the words to express this adequately. He said it best when he told me that we had ceased being separate beings and instead had become a third being formed by the two of us. Neither of us existed independent of that being, and that being was left to wander. Now, the power of astrology shows up again in this movie, and who knows who knows astrology and who studies what charts and who knows their charts and how things are cast and how things play out. But in the casting of Meryl Streep and Clint Eastwood, Meryl Streep was born with Saturn at one degree Virgo, and Clint Eastwood was born with Neptune at zero degrees 53 minutes of Virgo. It's almost an exact Saturn-Neptune conjunction between them. 
and Meryl Streep plays this Saturnian housewife resigned to the duties of family. And in comes Clint Eastwood, the photographer, the one who works with images, the one who works with imagination. And like those descriptions I just read, the connection is very powerful. So the last movie I want to mention, I will just mention briefly, not because it's not an amazing movie, but because it's similar themes to what I've already talked about. And that's The Lion King, which came out on the 15th of June in 1994 with Saturn at 12 degrees Pisces. And if you watch that movie and keep an eye out for these Saturn in Pisces themes of renewal and the water of life, you can see how they play out yet again. Like in The Sound of Music, how Maria brought the water of life back into the Von Trapp family. How in The Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, a trip to Alice Springs brought things back to life. How in The Bridges of Madison County, a stranger evoked all of the deepest passions laying till then dormant in the soul of a housewife in Iowa. And not incidentally, The Lion King begins with the circle of life. And now to move on to the last part of this episode. And while it's about Venus's exaltation in Pisces, the official name for this section is Beauty and Order in an Astrological Cosmos. And in an episode that has spent a lot of time flirting with the feeling of melancholy and the emphasis on feeling in the title of this episode feeling good feelings, old feelings, poetry and music feelings, which is a phrase that comes out of the book, The Bridges of Madison County. The emphasis on feeling is because Pisces is a water sign. The emotions come online. And sort of behind the scenes, woven throughout everything I've been talking about, is Venus. We know her as the planet of relationships, and Venus in Pisces is often talked about as a romantic Venus, where romantic is a lowercase r, but Venus's exaltation in Pisces is Venus the Romantic with a capital R. We see it between Francesca and Robert Kincaid in the Bridges of Madison County. We see it in The Sound of Music and it comes through the story of the seal woman, where Venus is more than just a planet of relationships. Venus is the goddess of love and beauty. And to emphasize the role that Venus has, seemingly behind the scenes, while Saturn is moving through Pisces, her role has the time-standing-still quality of Andy Dufresne playing that opera aria through the loudspeaker in Shawshank. The power of beauty to melt through the defenses of Captain Von Trapp and bring music back into the house. 
the joy of music throughout the adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. They show up in movies. They show up in culture. They show up in the arts. How often do they show up in your life? And is there place in Western culture? And are we missing something of the true power of Venus? So I want to turn again quickly to John Moriarty. And I'm sure for a future episode of this podcast, I will have the John Moriarty episode. But for now, I want to mention something that he says that may be the one line of everything that I've read from him and heard him talk about. He said, like it or not, I thought, the peoples of the West have fallen out of an astrological cosmos and into an astronomical universe. That seems like such a simple sentence, but it is loaded. In fact, this is a pathway to start talking about Pluto moving into Aquarius. But we'll save that for another episode too. But for now, I want to emphasize that by and large, the perspective of astrology in the Western world is through the lens of an astronomical universe, which is to say the spirit of the times, as Jung said in the quote from the beginning, has a scholarly bent. It has a scientific bent to it. It's the kind of lens that makes it very easy to dismiss romanticism and not take it seriously. When the astrological cosmos that Moriarty is referring to is Venus's original homeland in the ancient world. Through the scientific revolution and through the Age of Enlightenment, Venus has gotten short-shrifted. And this is the kind of thing that James Hillman had a lot to say about. See, when you're looking from the perspective of an astronomical universe, it's like law and order become the most important principles of the day. Law and order become the mechanics that operate the machine. Whereas in an astrological cosmos, you have a cosmology. And in a cosmology, beauty and order become of utmost importance. Now, this is what Hillman has to say in a conversation with Sonu Shamdasani, who was the translator of Jung's Red Book. This is from a book called Lament of the Dead, which is a transcript of different conversations between James Hillman and Sonu Shamdasani. Hillman says, if you want to understand the world, you have to have a cosmology. You have to have a sense that things fit, that they belong, that there's a need a place to be given to it, and that there's more and more to grasp. It's the cosmos, and the Greek cosmos was an ordered and aesthetic realm. That's where we get the term cosmetics. The realm of order and the realm of cosmetics, beauty. Today, the word is connected to women's decorations and jewelry. You have to have that, or what the hell's going on out there? Why pay any attention to it at all? You have to have a sense that maybe you're here not to understand anything, but to appreciate what's here. That's 
a cosmology, I think. In other words, living with the beauty of the world. I think that's what the Greeks saw. Now, when I hear Hillman talk about cosmology and cosmos as the fitting arrangement of things, I think what he's talking about is not just an order brought to the world through the constellations of the stars, and not just the story of a, of a year as told through the images evoked by those constellations, especially in the Greek world, especially in the Mesopotamian world. But it's everyday things like a flower arrangement. To see an astrological cosmos, it's arranged like flowers are arranged in a vase. Now, I don't arrange flowers, but I've watched people do this. And the way things are moved, the way things are put up and down, and the way things are clipped, and the colors, and the leaves, and the types of flowers, and all of it, there's, a, there's an aesthetic arrangement happening. It's like the arrangement in a piece of music, whether it's a pop song from the 80s or a Beethoven symphony. Somebody arranges the different parts and puts them together in a way that when they're played, it sounds beautiful. There's an order to it that brings out emotion. It's what the Robin Williams character in Dead Poets Society says, it's what we stay alive for. This starts to get at the role that Venus plays in her exaltation in Pisces. Now I'm going to go on a little more from Hillman, but first I want to tell you a couple stories from my own life. So when I was a teenager, my very first job was as a dishwasher in a pizza place. Now I could clean dishes. It was fine, but it was messy. Even if the end goal was to have everything clean, there was a lot of water, a lot of splashing around, a lot of spray but I would always bring my favorite cassette tape with me to work and I would set it on the top shelf where it wouldn't get wet and I could look up at it and see the cover of that cassette or that album in cassette form and be reminded that there was something more to life than washing dishes. But somehow it also said to me that washing dishes had its place. Now, the important part of the story here is that I was promoted to be a cook. So I wasn't a dishwasher for very long before I started cooking for people. And remember, this is a pizza place. And it wasn't just pizza, so I learned to make things on the grill. But I spent a lot of time making pizzas. And something happened that I didn't expect, that I was unaware of, but the restaurant had never experienced before in all of the years that it had been open. I would make a pizza, they would bring it out to the customers, and the customers would comment on the design of the pizza. I didn't know what I was doing. I just knew that I couldn't slop a pizza together the way that other people did in the restaurant. So I unwittingly ended up making the most beautiful pizzas that the restaurant had ever seen, enough that customers would comment on them the spacing of the hamburger pieces, 
arranged with the pepperoni. And I couldn't just sprinkle on mushrooms. I had to place them in a certain way. So this is Sean, the teenager, who incidentally was born with Venus in Pisces, bringing beauty and order to the pizza world, bringing beauty and order to the world through a pizza. But it doesn't stop there. I had eventually had enough of food and I vowed to never work in a restaurant again. I was just sick of working up, working in a place where he had to clean up that much. And I wanted to go work in an office. So I got a job in an office and it was a catalog company with a small warehouse connected to the office. And part of my job every day included packing up the orders for customers. I would take the, the various products of all kinds of sizes and shapes, some books, some games, some toys, put them in the appropriate box and pack it up for a UPS to come and pick up. And like making pizzas, I didn't know what I was doing. I would just pack the boxes, tape them up, put the labels on, write anything that needed to be written on the box. But what started happening was the UPS driver would come and almost every time there was a different driver, they would comment on how amazing the packed boxes looked. And not only how they were taped up perfectly, everything looked immaculate, but it was like I would arrange them on the cart like the game Tetris before there was ever a game called Tetris. Fitting them all together just right. This size goes here, that size goes there. That was young Sean bringing beauty and order to UPS boxes. Who knew? But just like the customers at the pizza place, everybody commented on those boxes. So again, I didn't really know that I was doing anything in particular. I just, that was how I had to do it. So fast forward years later, I've been learning astrology. I've been learning archetypes at the same time. I've been studying Jung. I have years as a counselor behind me, which is part of what led me to studying Jung. I discover the soul's code by James Hillman. And that's another story for another time. But in immersing myself in the works of Hillman, reading his essays, and interestingly, he was also born with Venus in Pisces, I started to understand what had been going on in those early jobs I had. And it wasn't just the jobs. It was in third grade when I learned handwriting. I don't know, is handwriting, is cursive writing even a thing anymore? This was before all of the computers and keyboards, really. I was in third grade, and when I learned handwriting, my handwriting was projected on the wall by the teacher as an example of beautiful handwriting. That was then, and this is now, so I, it's not quite the same. But this is, this is what I was able to reflect on when I would read something like this from Hillman, where he's talking about the importance of aesthetics in the context of the cosmos. He says, how does your own particular aesthetic response connect with the cosmos? To begin with, cosmos is originally an aesthetic term. 
It does not mean vast and empty outer space through which sealed-up cosmonauts fly at great cost. It meant the right placement of things, fittingly, becomingly, nicely. Cosmos was used especially of women with respect to their embellishments. And this meaning continues in our word cosmetics, which owing to our disparagement of the aesthetic, we see only as superficial, as in cosmetic surgery, makeup, false front. Whereas cosmos means that all things are on display, show themselves, and are presented to the senses, which respond to them with feelings of like and dislike, approval and disapproval, and with a varied and differentiated judgment of their value. Thus, your aesthetic responses are cosmological, not merely personal. They are signs that you are here and taking part in the entire world order, which is from the beginning set out as a pleasing aesthetic display. The world is first of all an aesthetic phenomenon before it is mathematical, logical, or theological. So the most basic reaction to being in the world is aesthetic. That word, aesthesis, goes back to a root that means I breathe in, like sucking in the breath when struck by beauty or horror. Our aesthetic responses are inherently related to the actual world and to the primary way that we take part in it. To suppress these responses is to cop out of the political, that is, out of the common shared world. That's Hillman. That's from one of his essays in the book called City and Soul. The importance of beauty in an astrological cosmos. I believe this is primary importance while Saturn is moving through Pisces. And while Neptune is moving through Pisces in the final degrees, heading toward that Saturn-Neptune conjunction at zero degrees of Aries in 2026. I loved reading that from Hillman because I really started to understand what was going on back in my pizza-making days, back in my packing boxes days. People were responding. People had an aesthetic response to something they found beautiful, even if it's UPS boxes. So that's something to think about while Saturn is moving through Pisces. It's another thing to keep an eye out for in the movies that I've talked about or in the things that you can bring into the Saturn and Pisces conversation. And to wind up this episode, we're going to go back to Hades Town, that musical by Aeneas Mitchell, because one of the great Piscean figures in mythology is Orpheus. Orpheus, like Venus, lives in an astrological cosmos. And when he makes music, the world around him comes alive. 
In the myth of Orpheus and Eurydice, of course, Eurydice dies, and Orpheus heads into the underworld to find her, to find his love. Love is what leads Orpheus down into the underworld. And in the musical, when he goes down into the underworld and he finds Eurydice, in the musical, Hades is building a wall in the underworld. It's the wall I mentioned in the previous episode from the song, Why We Build the Wall. It's a wall that's interrupting the order of the natural world. Nobody can get past that wall, but Orpheus does. And Eurydice in song sings, how'd you get beyond the wall? And he says, he sings, I'm going to (laughs) say, I sang a song so beautiful, the stones wept and they let me in and I can sing us home again. Part of the power of the musical is that it takes us out of an astronomical universe and places us back in an astrological cosmos. And on that note, I'm Sean Nygaard, your host at Imagine That. And you can find me on the web at imagineastrology.com. There you can find recordings of talks and classes I've presented, can find articles I've written and updates on upcoming classes or workshops or webinars. I do readings. I love doing readings. Right now I'm scheduling in the second half of April. And until next time, I'm wishing you well as Saturn begins to make its way through Pisces.